Welcome to the Make Dementia Your Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rita Jablonski. I'm a nurse practitioner and researcher with almost 35 years of experience working with people who have dementia and their family and formal caregivers. I explain why behaviors happen, what the behaviors mean, and how to best handle them. The information in this podcast is for educational purposes and is no substitute for medical advice or care. Welcome to podcast number 21. What to do when people living with dementia refuse help and care part two. 10 strategies for handling care refusals in the moment. First, I want to apologize for not getting this podcast out last Sunday. It was Thanksgiving weekend in the United States, and I had a really good time riding my horse and hanging out with family members. So next thing I knew, the weekend was over and I had to crash into my work week. So I got a little mixed up with my time management. Like I said in other podcasts, and as you can see in the description, I am an expert in dementia and behaviors, but I'm still a baby podcaster, and I appreciate your patience. So today we're going to dive deeper into behavior that really drives a lot of family caregivers off the rails. In episode 17, I talked about general ways to prevent care refusals. In this episode, I dive a little deeper and talk about how to use 10 specific strategies to derail care refusals in real time. But first, I want to acknowledge the incredible work of the late Dr. Jane Chalmers. She was a researcher and dentist at the University of Iowa back in the 1980s and 1990s. She conducted a great deal of research designed to help people living with dementia accept mouth and dental care. I owe her and her team a debt of gratitude because I used her published work as the foundation for my NIH-funded studies that tested strategies to reduce care-resistant behaviors in nursing home residents with dementia. And I focused on mouth care. The strategies she identified and published, and which I continue to refine and include in my work, are the strategies of priming, bridging, chaining, and hand over hand. And I'm gonna talk a little bit about all of that, all of those behaviors and strategies in a second. Some of you may be wondering where these strategies came from, not just the ones I borrowed from Dr. Jane Chalmers, but some of the other ones that I talk about. Short answer, I've been working with people living with dementia across different care areas my entire 40-year career in healthcare. I started out in 1982 as a nursing assistant and then became a registered nurse in 1986. So yes, Florence Nightingale was my first clinical instructor. For all you smart asses out there, realizing how long I've been working in in healthcare and working in nursing. But specifically, here is more of the backstory. While completing my randomized clinical trial on ways to prevent care refusals during mouth care, and if you're curious, you can always go to clinicaltrials.gov and look me up and see the publication. And that 
it might be a good thing to do at 2 o'clock in the morning when you can't fall asleep. Trust me, you'll be sound asleep in about 30 seconds. But anyway, while I was completing that study, I also started my current faculty practice in a memory clinic. And as the expert in behaviors, I would literally be faced with family caregivers telling me in the space of the visit, I can't get mom in the shower. I can't get dad dressed. I would literally be adapting my strategies on the fly while brainstorming with family caregivers how to handle refusals around bathing, medication, dressing, and other activities. I was also part of a three-year study which was funded by the Department of Defense, thank you for your tax dollars, where I provided weekly coaching to family caregivers of persons with either traumatic brain injury or dementia. And what we did is we took the strategies I had already used in the clinic and in my previous research, and we had further adapted them based on whatever was going on with the people living with dementia or the people living after having a traumatic brain injury. Between my work in all of these studies and my clinical practice, I am really good at coming up with strategies and scripts that work for family caregivers dealing with care refusals. And I'm sharing them here on the podcast. So enjoy. I mean, let's say you're in the middle of bathing your mom and she starts trying to leave the tub. What do you do? Or you can't even get your dad into the shower. Yes, there's going to be some overlap between this episode and episode 17 because some techniques are handy for preventing care refusals and managing care refusals in the moment. The one thing I want you to hold on to is it is super important to pay attention to what was going on right before the behavior happened because the timing may provide clues about why your family member started to resist or refuse care. And that's that's really important. And the other thing you may be thinking is, well, okay, you talked about all this stuff in episode 17. Why didn't you do part two for episode 18? Answer, timing. I wanted to share some of the holiday-specific content before the holidays because the holidays do bring up a lot of uh, shit for family caregivers. Well, it brings up a lot of shit for everybody. But if you're a family caregiver, you might get more heaping piles of shit to deal with. And I wanted to have something that would help prepare my listeners for anything they may be walking into. And then I jumped into hallucinations because anytime I have a theme going on in my clinical practice, I figure out that's the universe giving me a download of information to share. So that's how I roll. Yes, I actually do have a schedule, but it's more of a suggested schedule, and I do adapt depending on what problems show up in my world. And my future podcast, actually next week's podcast, is going to be about driving because that turned out to be a theme uh, this past week and with, with my messages and stuff. Okay, so let's get into the good stuff. Strategy number one, 
enter their reality or enter dementia land. And I have talked about entering their reality as a strategy in my earlier podcasts. I mentioned it in episode 17, but I'm going to talk about it again because this entering their reality is sometimes a source of resistance for family caregivers. I will hear often, Rita, why do I have to change my approach? I'm not the one with dementia. And my response is, and you can all say it with me because you probably have heard me say it a thousand times in these podcasts, you can be right or you can be happy. Pick one. You know, if you want to have the game of I'm right and you're wrong, as a family caregiver, just stop. (laughs) And it's not going to end well. So entering their reality is also a good way to prevent care refusals, like I mentioned in episode 17, but it can also be used to handle care refusals in the moment. When you enter their reality, you are approaching the problematic situation in a way that makes sense to the person living with dementia. In other words, your actions are aligned with their past memories, values, and experiences. Let's say you are trying to wash your mom's hair. And I had a situation where the daughter was the caregiver and she was trying to wash her mom's hair. And every time she attempted to do that, mom's behavior would escalate. She'd say no, she'd swat the daughter away. It it was horrible. Now, if the daughter gave mom a shower and didn't touch her hair, everything was great. But over time, you know, the hair needed to be washed. So the, the daughter went on to all these other websites and she figured out, well, maybe if I give mom a shower and then at the end I'll wash her hair, it, she'll be okay. She'll be used to the shower. Everything will be great. So daughter tried that, but her mother still attempted to leave. The sh- as soon as any molecule of water got close to her hair. After the daughter and I spoke, we both realized that her mother back in the 60s and 70s only had her hair washed and styled when she went to the beauty parlor, which is what we called it back then. And I kind of laughed when we talked about this because my own mom would get her hair done once a week at the beauty parlor and they would spray about a half a gallon of Aquanet on her hair. She had like a helmet and her hair stayed styled the entire week. She did not let us get it wet. So if we were all at the pool in the summer and you splashed and any water landed on my mother's hair, you would be drowned. So you learned early on not to splash the women and not to get their hair wet because that was a dangerous thing to do back then. And when I shared my experiences with the daughter, we both started laughing. And in fact, she started telling me about humorous situations where her mother would take great lengths to prevent her hair from getting wet in between the hairstyling appointments. So what the daughter decided to do is she did two things. 
One, she put a shower cap over her mom's hair when she took mom into the shower. Because even though mom was somewhat cooperative with the shower, she would start, if she felt like the water was getting too close to her hair, she would start to resist. And by the daughter placing a shower cap on her mother's hair, that was an, that tapped into her mother's reality because mom was moving backwards in time. And mom stopped fighting the showers. And then what the daughter did to wash her mom's hair is she had her mom sit in a kitchen chair and put her head back over the sink, which mimicked the sink where the hairstylist would wash your hair in the beauty salon. And the daughter took the handheld sprayer and would spray mom's hair and wash mom's hair in the sink. And I even suggested getting a plastic pitcher and filling it with warm water to wet and rinse the hair. It might have more control than the handheld uh, spritzer. So that's an example of entering reality. The second strategy or distraction is another useful technique. You can try singing familiar songs or asking your family member to talk about a favorite memory. We have found that singing is a very powerful distraction, but it works best if you know your family member's musical preferences or their favorite songs. And it's funny, while I was teaching at Penn State, I was working with a nursing home resident who absolutely refused to brush her teeth unless we would sing, I've been working on the railroad. And during one mouth care episode, I paused my singing because the woman had a mouthful of toothpaste and I'm watching her try to sing with all of the toothpaste in her mouth and I stopped because I thought to myself, I don't want her to choke. And as soon as I stopped singing, the resident turned to me with this scowl on her face and she smacked me in the head with her toothbrush. So I immediately resumed singing and she returned to brushing her teeth. The hilarious part was I had undergraduate students with me, you know, clinical instructor, pre-licensure students, and the look on their faces, they, they were horrified. And when we left the room, I simply looked at the students and I said, tuition, 10K, books, 3K. Seeing your professor smacked in the head with a toothbrush by a nursing home resident, priceless. And we all laughed about it and that was fine. So the third technique is bridging. And bridging is similar to the priming technique, which I talked about in episode 17. But to review, priming involves the use of the environment to help the person living with dementia understand why you are helping them. And priming is important to prevent care resistance. When I was a nursing assistant, and this is terrible, but I was taught to get the person out of bed, walk them to the commode, sit them on the commode, and while they're peeing and pooping, wash and dress them while they're sitting on the commode. Guess what? When I handed the person sitting on the commode a toothbrush and tried to get them to brush their teeth, they refused. And back then I didn't know what was going on, but now I realize they were refusing because who the hell brushes their teeth sitting on the toilet? I mean, maybe if you're intoxicated or you had a rough night, but really most of us sit or stand in front of the sink and brush our teeth in front of the sink. That bridging therefore builds 
on the same environmental triggering that priming does. With bridging, you try to use familiar objects to access the memories around the activity you are trying to do. To use the toothbrushing example, if I am helping someone brush their teeth and I really have to do it myself because their brushing is inadequate, I may sometimes encounter resistance because the person doesn't like the fact that I'm getting in their face, I'm getting in their mouth. But if I hand the person living with dementia a toothbrush or a denture cup, often the, tacti the tactile sensation of those objects start triggering memories of brushing teeth and the person living with dementia suddenly has context. Oh, I'm brushing my teeth, cool. So if you are experiencing care refusals while trying to dress your loved one, ask them to hold an article of clothing. And if you go to YouTube and type in Jablonski, dementia, and mouth care, you can go to one of my old pages where I uploaded all of these video clips. I've been meaning to start a new YouTube page and migrate everything over. I'll have a Make Dementia Your Bitch YouTube page, but that's something I can do over, you know, Christmas vacation. But those video clips are, are pretty cool. Now, another strategy is hand over hand. Sometimes you can help reduce care resistant behavior by using a hand over hand technique. And there are a couple ways to do this. The first is to place your hands over that of the person living with dementia and guide their hand with yours. And again, this works really well with, with mouth care. Another way is to place their hands over yours and continue with the care. I've used that technique to take dentures out. I've even had the person living with dementia grasp my wrists as I've provided care. I had a situation where I had a, a person living with dementia who resisted being guided into the direction of the bathroom. Wherever the caregiver wanted to go, he would go and do the opposite. And what I realized is the family members and some of the paid staff were trying to hold this man's wrist put their other hand on his back and kind of push him along in the direction they wanted him to go in and he was having none of it. So I had this flash of insight and I put out my wrists and he grasped both my wrists and I started walking backwards. That's how I got him into the examination room because he was refusing to go in and by letting him hold my wrists and I walked backwards, it gave him the sensation that he was in control and he was pushing me out of the way, but he was following where I was going. So if you do use this wrist modification technique of hand over hand and you walk backwards, just make sure you have a clear path and you don't trip over one of the examination stools. So after this brief break, I'm going to return with the remaining strategies. So stay tuned. Now I'm going to talk about mirror, mirror. 
Mirror Mirror is a strategy that I discovered in my own research. It works really well with mouth care, but it can also work great for dressing someone. Helping the person in front of a mirror is similar to using the environment to support memories of self-care. So what I do is I will sit the person in front of a mirror so they see themselves and I will reach around and provide mouth care from behind. And this worked really well when I encountered people with a lot of apathy. They had trouble just starting to care, even opening their mouth. And by sitting them in front of the mirror, I somehow triggered the expectation that they should open their mouth for mouth care. Little caveat though, sometimes people living with dementia no longer recognize themselves in the mirror and they think it's a stranger watching him or her. If you encounter that problem, do not use this technique. In fact, I've had some family members who had to cover up all the mirrors and all the shiny surfaces or reflective surfaces in their home because the person living with dementia would spot his or her reflection and insist there was an intruder in the house. And I think that would make a really cool future podcast. The next is caregiver vibes. Sometimes persons with dementia may refuse care because they are feeling rushed or they have forgotten halfway through the activity that they were in the middle of toileting, bathing, or getting dressed, and they'll start to leave the area. And it is normal for you as a caregiver to begin to feel angry, frustrated, or anxious when the care refusals start, especially if you are trying to get the person out the door for an appointment or some other activity. This is where the negative cycle occurs. The person living with dementia is starting to refuse care. You're getting upset and anxious and maybe you're showing anger or you're showing your frustration or you're exasperated and it's coming across in your words, which will trigger them to refuse more care, which then gets you more upset. So you see where I'm going with this. You're, you're spiraling down and it's normal, totally normal. When you start to encounter refusals, this is where you take a big deep breath because breathing hacks the vagus nerve, the vagal nerve, and it is very good at slowing down feelings of anxiety and stress. So when people tell you to take a deep breath, no, they're really not full of shit. There is a physiologic reason for why, for why slow deep breathing does work. But I get it. When I'm upset and someone tells me to take a deep breath, I'm kind of like, go fuck off. But anyway, that's my issue. So if you are starting to feel anxious and rushed and upset, this is where you stop, take a deep breath, and say to yourself, I'm doing fine. Because you really are. This is not an easy thing to do. And you, the fact that you're listening to this podcast, you're wanting to learn how to better work with a loved one with dementia. So kudos to you. Thanks. Awesome. Because you are. The next strategy is to ask for help. And this sounds so weird, but it it's, works specifically well when you are the adult child or grandchild caring for the parent or grandparent. 
What you do is you ask for help using short one-step requests. For example, I'm trying to help my dad get dressed and I'm trying to get his arm into the sleeve and he's looking around and he's not, he's sort of resisting care for whatever reason. Maybe he doesn't understand what I'm doing. Maybe he's distracted by something. What I can say is, Dad, can you help me and put your arm in this shirt? Please help me put your arm here. And oftentimes I'll supplement what I'm saying with gestures. So I'm holding up the shirt. I'm looking at my dad and I'm saying, Dad, please help me and put your arm in the shirt hole. And I'll literally be pointing to the shirt hole. And I'm trying to look pleasant and smile without looking creepy. I'm working on my own vibes. So here's the thing. You're not just doing one strategy at a time. Usually you're bundling several strategies together to get the task accomplished. And in the beginning, it feels so fake. But you do this a couple of times, and it, it literally becomes autopilot. And there are people who are intuitive caregivers. And they're, they're probably listening to this saying, well, duh, I do this all the time. This is common sense. It's not really common. Again, my mom was one of these people. She was a nursing assistant, and she would be doing a lot of these strategies, having no clue what she was doing. It just made sense. She intuitively was really good with people with dementia. So I hope I inherited some of her genes of being intuitive, but it also helps to have some neurobiology in your background. So asking for help, again, works really well because as a mom, I am programmed to help my kids. I'm not going to refuse my kids. And you can hack that when you're trying to circumvent care-resistant behavior. Another cool strategy is to apologize with praise. If the person you're working with starts to get upset, simply say, I'm sorry. It really does short circuit care resistant behavior. My favorite script is, I'm sorry. You are so patient with me. Thank you. And I'll even do this sometimes in the clinic if I'm engaged with a person living with dementia and I'm doing cognitive testing and they're getting frustrated and they're getting pissed. Or if I'm sitting in the clinic and the person living with dementia is telling me, yeah, everything's fine, you know, everything's cool. And a family caregiver is saying, no, it's not. And they're presenting what they see. And sometimes it gets a little difficult in there. So I do use the apologize with praise a lot to derail any care resistant or um, angry or negative behavior. Because it, you know, it's it's important. We don't want to shut down the person living with dementia. The person living with dementia needs to have outlets. They need to be able to communicate. And sometimes the only method of communication are activities that we find distasteful, but they're telling us something. And you become a detective and try to decode a lot of the behaviors. And again, you can be right or you can be happy. So... I do use the apologize with praise fairly regularly. And I'll, I might even add, I don't feel like I'm doing this right. I'm so sorry. 
And when you think about it, if you're angry or frustrated at a situation and you receive a sincere apology, not those half-assed apologies you get from some of those customer service jackasses, but when you get a, a sincere apology and you are getting the sense that the person interacting with you wants to make this right, doesn't that lower your anger? It works on me. And you're also adding a compliment. Because how many times a day do you think someone living with dementia receives a compliment? Zero? I mean, I don't have dementia. Well, at least I haven't been diagnosed. And I get compliments here or there, and it feels really good. So if I'm a care recipient, I don't think a lot of times I'm going to receive a compliment. So that's also something to think about. If you're working with someone living with dementia, use compliments uh, frequently and see how that elevates the mood. And when I say compliment, I mean, be sincere about it. You look great in that sweater. I love the color of your eyes. When you love someone, it's not real hard to come up with something to compliment them about. So, cool. Let's go to, we have two more strategies. The next one is rewards, aka bribery. If none of the pre- if none of the uh, strategies I just talked about seem to be helping, you may want to introduce some type of positive reward. And it, because you know your loved one living with dementia, you know what the reward may look like. I took care of someone whose reward was ice cream. If I offered ice cream, I could get almost anything accomplished. So I might say, hey, I know this is frustrating, but once we're finished, we're going to have ice cream. Or you could say, after this, we're going to go see the grandkids. That sometimes work works when you're being asked the why questions. You're trying to help your mom get dressed and get out the door, and mom keeps saying, well, why are we doing this? I want to stay home. Why? As long as it's truthful, you can say, well, we're going to see the grandkids. Now, you might be seeing the grandkids next Thursday, and right now you're trying to get your mom out to a dentist appointment, and maybe you don't want to mention a dentist because you're going to go on a whole other hamster wheel of discussion, and you can't handle that right now. So as long as there's an element of truth, okay, we're going to see the grandkids, and it feels okay with you, that's also a type of entering their reality. And no, I don't consider it therapeutic fibbing. Um, yeah, some people may argue with me on that, Sure, go ahead. But at the end of the day, were you able to provide care and both you and your loved one are reasonably happy at the end of the day? If the answer is yes, then, you know, use what works. The last technique is called rescue, and this is an absolute last resort, and it only works if you have another person nearby. That's when you can use the rescue approach. Where this happens a lot is there may be a situation where you have to remove soiled clothing or soiled underwear, and the person living with dementia is refusing all attempts. What you can do is have the other family member step in and tell you to leave, and then have the new person engage in the, in the, in the activity, like have the new person remove the soiled clothes. But rescue needs to be used carefully. You want person number two to be someone liked by the person living with dementia. And where I've often seen this used successfully 
is a three-generational household. The elder is refusing the care. The adult child is getting nowhere fast. In walks the grandchild, who already has a halo over his or her head, and the grandchild says, hey, Meemaw, how about we do this? And Meemaw's like, of course I'll do it for you, beloved grandchild. Yes, use it. The, you want to get the care done. It doesn't really matter how it you do it as long as you're not doing any harm or escalating any behavior. And a funny story. I was teaching clinical in a local nursing home. I love teaching clinical. I would rather teach clinical than teach a lot of other stuff. And one of my students was struggling. She was encountering a lot of care-resistant behavior, and I came in to help, and all I did was escalate the situation. I walked in, the woman took one, the resident took one look at me, and started really escalating from verbal refusals to trying to swat the nursing student, which wasn't a good thing. I swiftly removed the student from the situation. We went over to the nurse's station to discuss what was going on and what we could do. And without thinking, I took off my lab coat and draped it over one of the chairs in the nurse's station because it was really warm. And we re-entered the room. I walked in first. The resident looked up and gave me this big, beautiful smile and said, I am so glad to see you. I did not like the other nurse who just left. She's crazy. And I could feel the student behind me tensing up, like, oh my gosh, this nursing home resident just called, you know, Dr. Jablonski crazy. Well, she, the resident was probably correct. I simply went with it. I just smiled and said, yeah, I'm so glad that crazy nurse left. I'm here to help you. Oh, and Jean here is going to work with me. We did great. By walking out of the room, taking off my lab coat, and returning back to her room, I was immediately transformed into the nice nurse. And when that happens, you just roll with it. And we were able to complete this individual's care without any fuss. So that was kind of cool. In future podcasts, I will dive deeper into specific situations where care refusals are happening, like bathing and dressing. So thank you for listening to this podcast, and together we will make dementia our bitch. I hope you found this podcast helpful. Please rate and review on your favorite podcast platform so other dementia caregivers can find this podcast. If you are a caregiver for someone with dementia and need help understanding and dealing with these behaviors, please contact me. You can find me on Facebook, Make Dementia Your B, or email me, info at makedementiayourbitch.com.